Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME CE activity. There is no commercial support. The speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. To receive your CME CE credits, please answer the survey evaluation and you will find the evaluation link in the description section of the video. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Helen Ransom. She is a clinical ethicist for Northeast Georgia Health System. In her current role, Dr. Ransom provides leadership and resources to promote clinical ethics consultation, education, and policy development. Dr. Ransom received her BS from Tuskegee University in biology, her master's in philosophy from the University of Southern Mississippi, and her doctor of healthcare ethics from Duquesne University. Dr. Ransom also completed a fellowship in clinical ethics at Bon Secours Richmond Health System in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Ransom. All right, well, excuse me. Thank you for that warm welcome. And, excuse me. Thank you all very much for joining me in this discussion as we talk about Henrietta Lacks and the power of the narrative. Before we begin, I would like to share our objectives for today's session. So we are providing an overview on how Henrietta Lacks, her narrative impacted um, medicine, how she began her path for immortality. Um, we're gonna discuss the ethical issues related to informed consent and identify how narratives influence medical decision-making. Now, no, probably thinking that's a lot to cover, maybe a little ambitious for an hour, but uh, I think we'll be okay. To help provide an anchor for our discussion want to encourage everyone to take a step back. So with Henrietta Lacks, looking at her life, how it began in 1920 with her birth, um, she was married uh, in 1941 to David Day Lacks. Um, within, I guess from 1920 through her growing up, um, the book mentions, you know, there was um, some mystery as how, how does she come, you know, to the name Henrietta? But nevertheless, it stuck. Her family affectionately called her Henny. Um, after, I guess, during her marriage with uh, Day, they had uh, kids, Lawrence, Elsie, Sonny, Deborah, and Zachariah. She's remembered as being a loving woman uh, who liked to look nice uh, and paint her nails and with red polish. And how we learned about her today is through her cells, the HeLa cells, uh, which were collected from her cervix um, during an examination for cervical cancer. Now from this timeline, I'm pulling out three years 1951, 1976, and 2010. So during early 1951, 
Henrietta Lacks began to experience some health complications and was diagnosed with cervical cancer. She began treatment, uh, which consisted of packing radium into the cervix, um, and it was during the one of the initial courses of treatment uh, that the tissue samples were cut from her cervix, so one from the cancerous side, one from um, healthy tissue. And Dr. Gay, who did it um, as far as the removal of the tissue, gave it to uh, persons in his lab, and they began to watch to see if the cells grew. And unlike previous attempts, Henrietta Lacks' cells, after 48 hours, began to grow and replicate at a rate that was never seen before. Because during this time, uh, Dr. Gay and other physicians and scientists at John Hopkins, they were trying to find a way to grow human cells. And lo and behold, Henrietta Lacks happened. Also in 1976, uh, Mrs. Lack's cells uh, became known and recognized on a global level. Before 1976, of course, they were known as HeLa cells, but no one knew the name of the patient connected to those cells. Uh, during that time, it was thought that, you know, the person, you know, Helen Lawrence, Helen Lewis, Helen Larson, no one knew the name Henrietta Lacks. And it was also during this time when Henrietta Lacks's name was associated with the HeLa cells that her family began to receive some notoriety and some uh, respect. And also, I believe that this is where the family, because if you recall in the book, Rebecca had a hard time connecting with the family. So I believe that it was during this time that the mistrust occurred between the Lax family and medicine, or the Lax family and science. Because during this time, uh, there was a real push for curing cancer. And with the name being revealed connected to HeLa cells, geneticists thought, okay, well, well, great. We have a name. We have a family. Let's go to Virginia. Let's talk to the family. Let's see if we can get some more tissue, more uh, genetic information to study. And so they did. The family was told that the information was being collected so that way they could learn more about the family to see if anyone else had this type of cancer that Henrietta Lacks died from. Unfortunately, they weren't totally forthcoming with the information, so a lot of family members felt slighted when other um, ideas were later revealed. And some of it came out in the, the press and some of these articles that are noted in the Smithsonian and Rolling Stone. And another time from that timeline, 2010, and that was with the publication of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Slott. 
So Mrs. Lack's life is full of moments. Some were captured in the book, uh, and I would like to believe that there were many that were not. But those three years stand out to me as moments of recognition and acknowledgement for Henrietta Lacks. When she died on October 4, 1951, Mary Kubik, Dr. Gay's lab assistant, was sent to collect more tissue samples from Mrs. Lack's body in the morgue. It was at that time that Mary saw Henrietta. And when I say saw, she noticed her red, the chipped red polish on her nails, on hands and feet. And until that time, she didn't see or think about a person because she was looking at cells and something detached from um, the body. But kind of an important piece to note, those cells that Mary collected did not replicate, um, and it didn't replicate because of the radium uh, treatment. Now, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks is a collection of those key moments, um, and they also reflect the recognition and acknowledgement that Mrs. Lacks' narrative deserves uh, because of her impact. Uh, Rebecca did a really good job of remaining authentic um, by including the, fam including the family. She went through great lengths to gain their trust because, going back to 1976, where other reporters, people came in, they, for lack of a better phrase, used the family, discarded them after they got the information that they needed, and Rebecca was very much so aware of that. And with the development, especially of her relationship with Deborah, uh, we were able to see it. Something else that Rebecca did in the book was use quotes. And these quotes were used to make sure that the language of whoever she was quoting at the time did not get diluted or changed you know, in translation. You know, sometimes some things get lost in translation. Um, We'll get to a point later where we'll show that quotes can be used for other means of communication. Now, Deborah Lack's voice, like I said, very much so present in this book. And if you saw the HBO um, depiction of the book, um, Oprah's portrayal of Deborah. I think it was a really good job because it really highlighted Deborah's concern because Deborah didn't really know her mother. So she was hoping that through Rebecca's research, she wanted to know and learn more about her mother. And what we see is how Henrietta's narrative not only impacted her family, but also many people outside of the Lax family as well. The impact of Mrs. Lack's narrative is tied to issues of mistrust, 
as far as patients, mistrust of the medical field, poor communication that is highlighted as issues of concerns of patients in the medical field, um, and also concerns from patients that they're not seen. And here I'm not talking about an issue of access, but one of really being seen by someone. And ex probably the best example I can give of that is if you ever use the translator and you don't look at the translator, you look, I'm sorry, you don't look at the patient rather, you look at the translator. So again, being seen. And also, just as, you know, like with Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks' narrative is also linked to black patients not wanting to participate in research. So as we're, you know, talking through uh, Henrietta Lacks' story, it's important to note the historic context for not only patient interactions, but the informed consent process. So let's say, let's see, so she died in 1951. This began just in the American uh, context. The timing of this event and these other historic events um, emerged during some legal battles um, cases of patients suing doctors or families suing on behalf of deceased patients um, where physicians didn't obtain informed consent. So we had changes in the law. We had changes in the social context of the United States as far as emerging thoughts and protections of human rights. And so also, I guess kind of an important note to make with this, especially within um, my field as far as healthcare ethics, healthcare ethics was developed during this time. So all of these things kind of moving forward, pushing for a better or a more informed consent, consenting process. Other than her cells, Another tactile part of Mrs. Lacks' narrative is, to me, the informed consent form. So she signed this form in 1951. And if you see here, it says, I hereby give. And so just in taking a step back, the purpose of an informed consent is to give patients an opportunity to authorize you know, whether or not they agree or disagree, because you can consent and refuse, uh, to participate in, say, research or, you know, as far as different aspects of being a patient. The ability of a patient to make decisions and to act on their own understanding is important as far as an uh, honoring informed consent. And making sure that it is done without coercion, manipulation, undue pressure from another person, whether it be a healthcare provider or a family member. And so I ask that you, you know, look where 
Mrs. Lacks would have signed her name. And knowing what we know today, is this portion about consent any different than what we will see today? With these historic events, each one of them presented an opportunity to improve the informed consent process. I think in a way it's like it's forming or getting people to think about it as a process, as a narrative. Once the patient signs that form, it doesn't mean that it's over. Patients can still ask questions. Patients can still withdraw from research trials. But in developing this process, I think certain highlights regarding the informed consent and refusal process need to be you know, mentioned, and that is for as the highlight, highlighting the promotion of patient well-being, how informed consent and refusal promotes patient determination and autonomy. And it also, because of the sense of reciprocity that is expected with informed consent and refusal, it promotes trust, especially patients trusting the medical system. Now, everyone here, everyone has a story. Everyone has a narrative. You know, I was born Mississippi on the, in the Otis City along the Mississippi River. Everyone can fill in those where were you born questions. So that's a part of our narrative. Now, narratives of how our patients tell us about themselves and provide a means for providers to learn more about them. It can help with improving their health and also their healthcare outcomes. As providers, uh, we're taught to ask questions. Now, I guess for clarification, I am not a medical doctor, but in my training, fairly similar. While I'm not getting a patient history, I'm getting you know, an ethics history, if you will, when consulted. But there are certain questions that I'm trained to ask. Over the years, I have made some adjustments and changes. But when patients come to us, when they enter our doors, they're not just coming in with their illness. And so my adjustments over the years came with understanding that a little bit more. So patients are coming in with their narratives. Some will make you cry. Some will make you irritated and frustrated. Some will make you empathetic and apathetic at the same time. So how do we capture those narratives? Last year was an interesting year because two studies came out looking at notation, you know, what is placed in the EHR. And the July study that was published, it examined the language that is used by physicians to describe patients. So there were five major themes rep representing negative language and six themes 
representing positive language. The majority of negative language was not explicit, so it was not direct. Uh, it wasn't, you know, like, this patient gets on my last nerves. Uh, it was more subtle. And on the screen here, we have the ways that it, you know, kind of presented itself as how physicians question the credibility of what the patient said. And it's forced those five categories, you know, it's like I said, questioning the patient's credibility, expressing disapproval with patient reasoning, uh, stereotyping and social class, portraying patients as difficult, emphasizing patient, excuse me, physician authority over the patient. So uh, with that fifth component, just really highlighting some of the paternalistic language that may enter the record or enter the note. Now the five positive, or excuse me, the six positive um, language themes are direct compliments. So it wasn't all, you know, I don't want to think that it was all just the negative. There were some positive things and as far as direct compliments, expressions of approval, self-disclosure of the physician's own feelings uh, toward the patient, uh, minimization of blame. Um, physicians made, <clears throat> excuse me, made their notes personal um, toward the patient, you know, and highlighting some of the good choices that a patient made. And so these were more explicit, direct, and as we see here, we have some of that, uh, some of those examples. Now, with the other side of that, we had the, two, um, the October study in 2021. And this is where, how I mentioned, you know, Rebecca using direct quotes, wanting to make sure that the family's voice or those that she interviewed was heard and not lost in translation. She did it to honor uh, Henrietta, Henrietta Lacks' story. Quotes. And this uh, aspect, as far as how they enter um, the HR, were shown to have uh, negative or to convey negative uh, emotions, the prevailing one being frustration. Uh, frustration amongst patients, you know, like why did they decide this? Just really questioning their reasoning, patients' reasoning. Also, there were quotes um, that highlighted their poor grammar, unsophisticated terms uh, concerning you know, body functions. Um, an example that stands out from this um, study was a patient who said you know, that he would eat something and it ran right through him. Um, with that quote, like, what would be so different than to say that the patient uh, had diarrhea? Now, if you recall from the book, um, there was a bit of a disagreement as far as whether the physicians told Mrs. Lax about the side effects of the radium treatment and how it would cause infertility. Now, if we were, you know, to look in the notes that they, you know, as far as quotes from uh, Mrs. Lax, you know, how would she had said it if they 
had quotes in her chart, how would have been how would it have been captured uh, with what we know about uh, Henrietta Lacks's education level? Now another narrative that we engage in as providers is you know that of the handoff. So we all know that there are certain things that are not everything is not documented in the chart. So handoff becomes a bit of a shorthand um, so that we can get our peers up to speed, you know, involving you know some of the simple things with a patient. Now, the question that I'll put out there for us to ponder is how many times have you been told or told someone about how the patient or their family was being difficult? And my follow-up question to that is how did hearing that the family or the patient is difficult, how did it influence your interactions with the patient or family. Interestingly enough, um, I think an example of a kind of handoff occurred to me yesterday. So I'm new to the area and being new, going through the whole thing of establishing care um, with new physicians. So I have some skin issues. So tough after doing the primary care visit needed to set up an appointment with a dermatologist so was referred to one so the nurse you know gathers all the information does all the you know kind of the groundwork and i get into a get into a gown wait on uh, the doctor to come in a few moments later the doctor, I hear the doctor and the nurse on the other side of the door. Now, the nurse is getting her up to speed, you know, just doing, you know, I think a really good job of preparing the doctor for, you know, what she's about to encounter. And during that exchange, the nurse mentioned that I'm on medication. Medication is called Dapsin. So if you know anything about Dapsin, you have to be really careful in monitoring hemoglobin uh, levels um, because of the concerns that could occur with you know, low or high hemoglobin. And after that bit of information was shared with the physician, uh, that's when I heard the doctor ask, well, how did she get it? And did she even do a biopsy? Which, to me, indicated that she wasn't questioning, say, my previous provider, my previous dermatologist, but she was questioning me. And I started thinking to myself, like, hey, I was referred, I had to do with the record. So just a lot of questions going through my mind. So as those questions begin, to come into my mind, and there were some other things that were said, and I'm not trying to, you know, beat up on the doctor in that situation, but I redressed and waited for the dermatologist to enter the room. 
Now we have reached uh, a crossroads of sorts where the patient's narrative comes in contact with the narrative that the provider shares about the patient. And some of these things can be hard to address because of the possibility of confusion, mixed emotion, frustration, hurt feelings. And this complexity, especially, you know, since some of this stuff is rooted not only, say, in 1951 with the passing, uh, at Henrietta Lacks' passing, but deeper than that. And that stuff is hard to talk about. It's hard to articulate. And so that leaves the providers and the patients each maybe being afraid to say something, afraid to address, you know, what's the saying, the elephant in the room, and afraid that what they say will come out the wrong way. So they may feel that it's best to say nothing. Let's bring this connection about patients and narratives, let's bring it a little closer to home. So our HCAP scores are low. Um, I wish I could maybe do an Egg McMahon impersonation, but we're two out of five stars. And with incidents such as physicians not speaking to patients in a manner that is understood, uh, patients not uh, knowing who is doing what to them, so providers coming in and out of rooms, and they're not clear what role um, they're playing in their care. And also concerns that patients have noted about you know, just kind of a general lack of respect. Now this snapshot uh, shows how dissatisfied our patients are, but I also think that it shows how there is room for improvement and possibility as concerning as this information is. To see these possibilities, let's take a step back and try to put the pieces of our collective narrative together. So the moment for Mary came when she saw Mrs. Lack's chip nail polish, when her uh, Mrs. Lack's body was in the morgue. Now what we have here on this slide is Mary's uh, quote uh, from The Immortal Life, and it gave me pause. And so in looking at this quote, we really, it, I think it does a really good job of showing how in our training, we tend to operate in a way where we forget that maybe the patient is a person. And especially with this quote, it highlights how Mary depersonalized her interaction. Because, uh, you know, before she's just dealing with cells, she's dealing with tissue. Now, before her lays Mrs. Lacks. So in this moment, um, will I give some life-changing advice as far as how to best engage our patients you know, is this where I give you those keys 
You know, like, what's, what's missing? Maybe, perhaps. But I will go a little out on the limb and say, these are things we already know. So my time in using Henrietta Lacks' story is to serve as a gentle reminder. You have done the training. You know what to do. While our instincts may be okay in some situations, healthcare providers are professionals. So your instincts paired with preparation and knowledge will improve our patient engagement. You've been trained on how to talk to patients. So in the midst of all of our patient interactions, remember you are the professional. And to paraphrase Pellegrino, as healthcare professionals, you made a promise to be competent and made a promise to use that competence to enhance the interests of your patients. So again, this is a gentle reminder to recall those skills, all these things that are listed, we know them. But have we made any attempt to make it our own? And have we made any attempt to reflect, to see where maybe what worked for us last year may not be working for us now? And I'm just saying that because you know, in changing jobs and moving from North Carolina to Georgia, well, yes, I was still working in a rural hospital system. It's different. And I think it would be a little foolish of me to think that, okay, well, what worked in Eastern North Carolina will work here in Northeast Georgia, and it won't. So our training, your training in education mean nothing if we don't reflect on it in a meaningful way. And I'm not suggesting, you know, that everyone, you know, write a diary entry, but whatever, however you reflect, use it. Again, we all have the training. But applying it to your patient engagement practice, again, making it your own. Knowing and respecting a patient's narrative can add to the, not only the exchange of information or the conversation, but it can add context to the timeline and anchor a treatment plan in a manner that is both informed because you're getting information from the patient and also sensible because the patient feels they are included. And if you, as a professional, guide the conversation, you can help, you know, kind of navigate the stories that patients are telling us. Now, there may be times when we operate on autopilot because that is what makes our lives easier. But while we're going through those motions, we are still interacting with people. So, again, gentle reminder. Take a step back. Reflect. As we live, we face new challenges. And also, we have to be reminded of the things that we did, all of our training. 
And as much as I'm encouraging you to listen to the patient's narrative, I'm asking you to reflect on your own, especially when it comes to patient interactions. Ask yourself, why am I so irritated by this patient? Why did I call this patient difficult? Did I look at the interpreter or did I look at the patient? Hopefully you looked at the patient. How long have I been operating on autopilot? Will I only see my patient, and I mean see them, when their red nail polish is chipped? So take a step back, reflect, and again, especially with Henrietta Lacks' story and narrative, it gives us its so many things. We could have gone with so many directions in today's talk, but I think anchoring it in the narrative, especially now, um, is important. And I say especially now because, just speaking for myself, I've been operating in a sense of autopilot. And I kind of had a few moments where I needed to snap out of it. So again, gentle reminders for all of us to take a step back, to reflect, and to adjust. So with that, many thanks to everyone for tuning in and look forward to many more discussions. Thank you.